So, you know, I open the door to go into the hospital. There's the day room, and I see these people drooling and with their clothing askew. And I said, wow, what am I doing in here? I got to get out of here. I'd rather, I'd rather die in the streets fighting the revolution than be killed in this hospital. Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm Petra Belzebor, and this is the place to discuss tips, tricks, and hacks to build your resilience through your worst rock bottoms and get you to a place of success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life, professionals, individuals who've been through their own adversity, and allow them to share their authentic and real life stories, opinions, and ideas about how to utilize our worst rock bottoms and allow them to catapult us into success. Welcome to the show. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm very privileged. We have been trying to arrange this for a little while, but I've got Don Karp on the end of the line all the way in Mexico. Welcome to the show, Don. Thanks, Petra. Glad to be here. It's really exciting to have you here. Um, So tell our listeners just a little bit about you. What excites you? What are you passionate about? Ah, that's good. Well, my latest passion that's been ongoing for a long time, but more emphasized is playing blues harmonica in Ooh, public with, with, with a band. Really? Yeah. How long have you been playing for? I learned when I was 15 years old. I self-taught. I don't know how to read music or anything, but I had a little book with numbers and arrows, and that's what's on the harmonica. Oh, that's I love so cool. Go ahead. Basically, my passion is being in front of audiences, whether it's teaching, speaking, facilitating a workshop or playing music and playing music is the very simple and basic to me. So it's quite, so you're quite creative, I guess. It, it sounds like a really like mindful activity, like something that you would be in flow doing. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's what I like about it. And I think the, uh, anything rhythmic breaks up what I'd call psychic cataracts. You know how your eye has a film I think when in normal life, the way things are today, going around doing whatever we do, we pile up these cataracts covering our psyche and the resonance of anything rhythmic breaks them up. I think that's so true. And so many people seem to be what I call sleepwalking through life where they're yeah. just, right? Like in a yeah. habit or a routine, or I'm in London, it's a big city. People are just on their nine to five, their commute. It's so like fast paced and, 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 and hustling and, you know, and, and you kind of think, does anyone stop and actually ask themselves, is this what I want to do? Or who am I within this picture? And it sounds like yeah. the music can, can just be one of those disruptors that make people go for, even if for a little minute, right? Maybe there's right, more yeah. life, right? Maybe there's something energetic. Yes, definitely, yeah. So were you, have you always been into music? Yes, more or less. I mean, it's, I've been, I would call that I've been more of a weekend warrior with the music. You know, I'm not somebody who wakes up in the morning and starts blowing on the harmonica. And I don't even like to play unless I have somebody to play with. So that might change a little bit. I'm starting to try and learn lyrics. It's very tough for me to learn lyrics. And I'm, I'm going to learn how to play a different type of harmonica that I've been trying for years and not getting through the it's called a chromatic so there's things i can do and i'm sort of like one big struggle i have is i'm retired i used to be tired now i'm retired <laughs> oh, and, and, that yeah. hap- 
That happened in 2003. Yeah. When I moved to Mexico. Mm-hmm. And uh, so basically, I have this sort of inner battle that's constantly going on about uh, legacy. You know, I'm 76 years old, and how much time do I have left to? I've already done quite a bit of legacy things, so I can look at that. But there's a part of me that, okay, so I'll need to focus to get these things done, right? But I'm retired, and retired means having a good time and just doing what you want to do every day and not so much on the focus. And the other part of me says, well, if you focused a little bit, maybe the free time would be even more free because you wouldn't be, you know, thinking about the the legacy during your free time. So it's this yeah, that's actually really interesting to hear the perspective of somebody who's who's a little bit older and who is thinking. I mean, I think about legacy a bit, but I think of it like, oh, I still have like I'm 39. I turn 40 next year. Um, and, and so I've got this like, oh, the next 20, 30 years of my career, I'm going to build it like this and do this kind of stuff. So I'm still sort of forward facing. And it sounds like from your perspective in your 70s, you're kind of going, all right, I've done stuff, I've experienced, I, you know, I have memories and all these things. And the, pers- I mean, what, like, when does the perspective shift? I don't know. What's it like? Well, uh, I think, you know, I can't measure that particular shift. I just know that when I was young, my father's religion was work, not making money, not doing a good job, but you go to work every day and you're on time. And that was his religion. And I had this paper route where I had, I was like a teenager, maybe 15, and I had 120 papers to deliver every day and customers to collect money. It was too much responsibility. And I think this affected my whole career outlook since then. I mean, I've worked, but off and on and not super engaged in any particular career. And maybe that's affected my outlook now. It's like, now I'm feeling like this, this little boy wants to play. So. That's what I do. There's nothing wrong with playing. But it sounds like it's very interesting that we sort of rebel, like our whole life kind of follows a certain trajectory and it can just be a reaction to whatever our parents were doing, right? If, if work yeah. was God for your dad, you're a bit like, oh, I've witnessed that and that's not exactly how I want things to be. Right, yeah, that's do you, true. Did you feel like, if you give us a bit of context about growing up, that there was a kind of um, pressure or expectation to, to be a certain way or to go down a certain track? Mm, well, my father was not with me much. He was present, but not emotionally. So uh, I remember him saying when I was in high school, well, I heard you got an A on that report. How come you didn't get an A plus? And for him, this was a humorous thing. For me, it was somewhat devastating. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't really a di- sense of direction like you're talking about. For me, it was more like a lack of self-esteem, self-confidence, because I was always being put down. And as a younger child, I didn't know what to do with this, really. I mean, I had these feelings, and I felt ugly, stupid, and clumsy. And I didn't know where to go with these feelings. There wasn't, wasn't anywhere to go with them. Did you have, what was your, was, was your mom in the picture? Did you have siblings? Oh, yeah. I had siblings, I had a mom. My mom was pretty strong, only her mothering was like smothering. I couldn't tell what everything I did was so great because I'm her son, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. Which isn't necessarily great for our self-esteem, actually. No. 
kind of think, oh, well, whatever I do is fine over there. But then on the flip side, dad's more critical or you've got sort of um, another voice saying you're not good enough, right? So that could be pretty confusing. Yeah, yeah, that was confusing. I didn't think of it that way, but that's, there was this, that dichotomy, yeah. Yeah, mixed messages. Um, and then what was school life like? Did you, you so, so you said you, you sort of felt stupid or, or like you, you weren't enough, but did you, I imagine culturally and generationally, it wasn't really taught to talk about your feelings or to kind of communicate about that stuff, the kind of tricky stuff to anyone. Um, so you yeah. just, what did you do? Did you just hold on to it? It just builds up over time. Yeah, I guess I just held on to it and it built up over time. I, I mean, I, I, uh, my mother did, was a great person other than what I told you. When I got to be in more of an adult and further along, we became really good friends, except not just mom and son, because we had a lot of interests that she inculcated in me. And uh, so she sent me to summer camp every year. I began to be interested in nature and very curious. And I got involved in uh, laboratory work in biology. And the test tubes kind of took the place of relationships. So the people that I did hang out with were nerds. They didn't call them nerds in those days, but that's yeah. basically the few friends I had were mostly like that. Do you think and, you uh, almost consciously did that? Like it was tough to do relationships or to, to navigate fitting in? And so it was easier to like focus in on that stuff? Well, I tried fitting in and I don't think it was conscious. It was more like, like, a, like uh, to me that life, like I think we talked about this earlier, maybe before you turn the thing on. Yeah. is about the, life is, has a lot of these decisive moments where suddenly you realize, wow, this is going on. I got to stop and think about this and make a change. So I, I see my life as a series of those kinds of things. In like a, in junior high school and in high school, I was in a fraternity. And it was so, I mean, this is to get, so I could have more friends. Okay. And it was kind of, kind of counterproductive. Because I saw the way some of the behaviors in there, and I was really shocked. And it sort of, I, I had to leave, and I didn't get into fraternities in college or that kind of thing. When you say kind of behaviors, are you talking about like initiation or stuff that was um, a bit mean or like you didn't agree with? Well, initiation, yes. But other things like, uh, for instance, officers, when we were having an election, these people who were nominated would go out in the hall so we could discuss them. We never talk about their abilities, their leadership abilities. We talk about their excellence in sports, how good they, how many girlfriends they had, and uh, their gambling abilities. Oh, lovely. So those, that's what was determinant of who would be the next leader of the thing. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and they chose me to be a chaplain. Did they? Because they knew I wasn't religious. And maybe part of it was a joke. I don't really know. So I was the one who swore people in on the Bible and started off the meeting with a reading and things like that. And there were other, other things in there too going on. Mm. But it didn't quite fit for you long term. Right. right. Mm. So that was like, wow, this is, this is terrible. I, I don't want this. Okay. So you're making those sorts of choices. So I love what you say about these, these sort of moments in our life, right? Um, yeah. where we sort of have the, the option, the opportunity to sink or swim in a way, right? Um, and I guess that's the premise of this podcast, Adversity to Advantage, is thinking, I'm just always curious about how come some of us 
use those moments as sort of a springboard or a catalyst for greater learning and growth. And other ones of us get stuck in addiction, depression, all sorts of things. And, and some of us, like me, do a little bit of both. <laughs> you know, We do a little bit of everything as we figure ourselves out. Talk us through some of those moments for you. So those moments that were perhaps um, about adversity or challenge that perhaps changed the trajectory of your life. Can you relate to any kind of rock bottom moments? Oh, yes. I was just going to talk about that one because this is my biggest change is like, uh, so I went to graduate school and I wanted to become a PhD biochemist, Yeah. do research and teach. And uh, I'm, I'm strutting along through my college career. I'm in the seventh year of college, straight through sometimes summer school. I'm in graduate school. And I realize uh, probably it was during an LSD experience. This is the late 60s. And, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't find anything in common with it, much to talk about. With other graduate students, we talk about politics, sports, and the work we were doing. They didn't, nothing about philosophy, music, the arts. That, you know, just didn't come up with those people. So I was kind of lonely. And I realized the competition that goes on in academia, in science, publish or perish, it's a lot of backbiting, old boy kinds of things. It was terrible. And I realized, geez, I'm really too sensitive. I don't think I can do this as a career. And meanwhile, while I'm going through this thinking, I had a younger brother, 10 years younger, who was fully into the, what was going on, the counterculture that was emerging at that time. And he kind of pulled me into it. I went to Woodstock Festival. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And I could talk a little about that. But uh, anyway, so I'm I'm in the, I'm experimenting more with psychedelics than I am in the laboratory at that time period. And uh, so I got a hold of some very powerful marijuana hashish. I'm smoking that every day and thinking I'm becoming an alchemist. Okay. (laughs) So after a month, I start having flashbacks to the psychedelic experiences. And I think I'm being drugged in my food for different reasons. I was also involved in in radical politics. So I thought people were following me. Some of these paranoias are tied into reality, at least a crumb of it. A lot of people were being followed at that time. Mm -hmm. The drugs, the radical politics. And uh, then I started hearing whispering of voices. And I didn't know what they were saying. It was a group of people who were talking about me and saying unkind things. It was my intuition. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't get rid of this. I'd leave the house thinking it's coming from upstairs or the hall, or I didn't know why. Could just couldn't get rid of these voices. And I thought maybe the dentist put a radio receiver and a filling. Wow. But, and eventually I just flipped out so bad that I drove a car off the road purposely. I was gentle. And, uh, couple of, I guess they were plain clothes and interviewed me, bad cop, good cop routine. And my mother brought me to a psychiatrist at the medical center. And after a five minute interview, he said, you need to be in the hospital. So I signed in. And as soon as I, he didn't give me any alternatives. He's a professional with a tie and everything. And I'm this naive guy. So as soon as I signed in. Were you pretty honest at that point about the voices and everything that you'd been afraid of up until that point? With him, you mean, or? Yeah, with him, with your mom, like once you'd, you'd I guess, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. So you, yeah. So is it fair to say you were pretty desperate and you were like, I need some help, like this is freaking me out? 
I didn't say it that way, but that's my actions showed that. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I opened the door to go into the hospital. There's the day room and I see these people drooling and with their clothing askew. And I said, wow, what am I doing in here? I got to get out of here. I'd rather, I'd rather die in the streets fighting the revolution than be killed in this hospital. And yeah. so I made a feeble attempt to break out and the men in the white coats came and, you know, with a syringe, which I begged for pills. I got a handful of pills and ate them and some nice aide sat with me because I thought that was my deathbed. Mm. When I woke up the next morning, what had died is my naivety. But I went, that was like the turning point there of this whole, in the mental hospitals when I made a decision after seven years, it's very hard to make the decision because of the financial energy and uh, other time investment. I made the decision what would make my life easier is to get out of this career and quit. So I did that and I got a master's degree because I'd done all the, more than necessary for that. And uh, there's more to the story, but anyway, that was my most decisive moment. And I went through so wait, but just just let me get this straight. So how long were you in the hospital for? Oh, the first time for about five months. But okay. I had, uh, there was recidivism. Over the next eight years, I was in hospital seven times, usually and, for a month. And did you get diagnosed with a condition? Were, were they just kind of testing loads of things? Were you just on loads of medication? What was going on for you as far as the treatment plan? Yeah, I was diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic okay. and uh, put on antipsychotic Thorazine okay. in the beginning. And so what was it like when you were transitioning? You were, you're in hospital and everything's sort of taken care of for you in a way. And then you come out after five months. You're, you're kind of doing this ping pong thing, right? Like, where would you go when you, when you left hospital? How would you piece together your life? Hmm... Well, there were a lot of those moments, so it's, it's just kind of all a smudge right now. I'd managed to pull myself together. Sure. I remember one time a social worker put me on welfare or something like that, and I got an apartment. My mother helped me get an apartment, and then I didn't like that one and moved to one that I liked better. And there were times when I lived with my parents as a, as a young adult. That was horrendous. Not a good thing. I don't recommend that. And Just I was able to staying with your parents bit when you were in that situation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, another time I got, I was in California. I went to Berkeley cause I was told that's where there's a lot of disturbed hippies and I could probably get better treatments out there, mm -hmm. which was a huge roller coaster out there. But anyway, I saw a psychiatrist there who got me on something called aid to the totally disabled. Can you imagine being labeled? I felt like third base with that kind of a label, you know, totally disabled, but huge amounts of money. I could have gone world traveling and everything if I had kept that. Label. Yeah. If I, yeah, if I had kept the, the, the payments from that label. And so you're, you're surviving essentially, and you've got this new information, you're managing your mental health, you've got different kind of situations keep changing. Like, how are you coping with this that might sound like a ridiculous question because you've got paranoid schizophrenia right but still there's something about we how we manage a mental illness right and if we're getting appropriate support or if we feel we can talk or if we feel judged and stigmatized like what was that bit like for you 
Well, I can tell you, talk about the stigma. Yeah. Uh, I applied for jobs at one point during all this relapsing. And I thought, you know, I got a certification in California to teach at junior colleges and applied to a lot of them. I applied to laboratories. In those days, it wasn't that hard to get a job. And after 20 job applications and not getting nowhere, I started getting suspicious about my professor's recommendations. Mm. Now, we didn't have a Freedom of Information Act then, so mm. I couldn't look at these. What I had to do was send my file to a friend pretending I was applying to work with him. And he told me what they said. These are recommendations. They said he's a campus goody-goody. That was because of my political activities. And another one said he's brilliant but remote. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I, I can understand why they did this because of the old boys club and protecting themselves and all this. But they should tell me, I think ethically, I can't give you a good recommendation and not give bad recommendations. That's, you know, so that's some stigma. Yeah. And as far as the help and coping, I went through a lot of different kinds of things. I mean, I had therapists that were mostly useless. Some few were actually harmful. And, uh, okay. I, uh, mm. and I had, uh, I was out in Berkeley. I was a member of what's called the Berkeley Rap Center. That was uh, probably around 1970. The psychiatrist in charge of the whole thing was involved in what's called radical psychiatry. Sounds dangerous. <laughs> the, chief, the chief premise is that uh, ment so-called mental illness is caused by capitalism. That's Ooh. the main premise. Oh, my. So how do they rid one of that? <laughs> well, I mean, they didn't work on capitalism. There was groups and individual sessions that I was involved with somebody else. And this was using uh, Eric Byrne transactional analysis. Mm -hmm. I'm okay. You're okay. You know, yeah, that, that were, it was pretty, it was pretty good. You know, it was sort of a community for me. Sure. And we did other things besides getting therapized. But community uh, is so important. And you mentioned with the harmonica and the music stuff, you like to play with other people. And there's something about the, the coming together without stigma and judgment and having community based on music or therapy or whatever it might be, right? That can yeah. kind of just be uplifting regardless of whether it's therapy. It's the people together that can kind of support us. Right, yeah. That's been so important all my life, this idea of community. Probably going back to my Jewish roots, the tribal sense of Judaism is, uh, and when I was growing up through all those difficulties without a father, fortunately there were uh, people, extended family, men who would support me and teach me things and more like a father figure. Yeah. So you're that's still, about, sorry, go ahead. Wow, well, that's still a search today is community. It's a tricky one, right? Um, Very, yeah. Uh, the, the world is more, more and more fast-paced and disconnected, it seems. People are, seem to be losing the skill, I think, of connection and community. Um, Definitely, and, yeah. Right? So, so yeah. You're, you're, not, you're not alone. But it's so crazy. I speak to so many people who are like, community, community, community. And I'm like, all right, if everyone's saying this, then what the hell's going on, right? Why aren't we just reaching out and connecting? But that's another topic, perhaps. So you're, you're going through the frustration, you're realizing there's stigma of trying to apply for jobs, trying to be productive, make some kind of life for yourself. 
Um, and, 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 but then you also said something about getting a master's degree. So I'm wondering when that happened or how you're, you're kind of finding the resilience to do some of these things. You know, I think that comes from my mother. Her, her expression was, if something doesn't work, don't keep doing it, try something else. And I think even Einstein said something like, someone who keeps doing the same thing over and over and getting the same negative result, that's a definition of insanity. Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm uh, kind of a trailblazer, I guess, in my life. Much more than other people I've, that I know. I've changed lifestyles, tried different things. Something doesn't work, become aware of it, try another. That's what the resilience comes from. And it's not just this, right? All of those situations build up your resilience. Yeah. Yeah, in a way. I wouldn't recommend, you know, I wouldn't recommend going in a mental hospital to build up your resilience, but there are things that happen anyway. And to be aware and be, you know, be open to what's going on in your life, have some regular habits of journal writing or going on retreats or whatever it takes to kind of track what's going on, have having goals and making little steps to reaching them, being aware of bad habits and trying to get good ones in there instead. There's yeah. a lot of ways. And, and certainly the, the community support is a very strong thing for me in terms of accountability and tracking. In fact, I want to mention one little thing about that. Uh, I discovered eventually that my need for community was so great. I didn't know who I was without a reflection from other people. Mm. But I was in, you know, I realized I was in a really terrible situation, very dirty mirror, but I needed it so badly, even though it was dirty. And from then on, I kind of gradually weaned myself away from that specific need with community of being mirrored. So I feel really good not needing that anymore. Because what's the um, what's the downside of that? Of just like your self worth, it sounds like is is connected or attached to like that mirror, how other people see you, rather than yeah. your inner self worth. Is that right? Yes. And what about all those dirty mirrors? What kind of reflection do you get from them? Yeah, and that and that would be a bit of a process to like just to first of all have some awareness and then create some distance. But it's kind of scary if, if you then, you know, you'd be like, if I lose that way of coping with things, what am I left with? Who, who am I looking at? Or, you know, do I have to look within, right? Like, how do you even do that? <laughs> well, I guess I think that's a lifelong learning process. And uh, I'm, uh, I made a goal to meditate more regularly. And I, a few years ago, maybe four years ago, I learned Vipassana meditation. I went to a retreat and learned it. And I've been doing that about 20 minutes regularly, but not regularly enough. So I decided I'm going to do this every day. Even if I only do three minutes of it, it will be building towards creating a habit. And, and so I, do you feel that some of these things, meditation, you talked about journaling, goal setting, community, the, these sorts of things have been helping to support your mental health sure of course yeah and also yeah. other things yeah i mean there's a whole slew of lifestyle things like diet exercise uh the creativity part we talked about in uh you know, there's a lot of individual lifestyle things then there's things like relationships and communication so when somebody thinks they have they caught schizophrenia it's a disease. I don't really 
by the disease model for mental, so-called mental illness. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the peer-reviewed literature supports it. In fact, I think Mexico is definitely, we know that Mexico is controlled by the narcos. All of, just about everything in the, I don't know what it's like in London, but in the United States, the pharmaceutical industry controls the rest of the country. They control the media. They control the borders in terms of people going to Canada for reasonably priced drugs. And basically they're harming and killing people with what they put out, but they're making money doing that. So that's, uh, I do remember being in the States, it did feel more um, uh, kind of in your face, abrasive, unapologetic, you know, even just in the, in the advertisements and um, about how you need medication for everything. It feels like that message is constantly there. Um, yeah. Here they definitely, if you go to your doctor and talk about a low mood, they do give antidepressants out very quickly, but we don't have as many kind of adverts constantly saying you need this medication to make your life better. Um, but, but that, that's one of the most difficult and even horrific things from the conversations I've been having on this podcast, where somebody comes with a, a mental health issue or a challenge and the medicalized approach, you're going into a mental institution, the amount of drugs and not necessarily being given what you just talked about, which is skills around relationships. The, the acknowledgement that we need community, especially if we have mental health issues, that we can still hold jobs, that we can still lead productive life, you know, like that uplifting, we all have mental health, how can we support each other message, rather than that, like, medicalized, stigmatized version of it, you know? Yeah. And also, there's more, there's this aspect of acceptance that the medical profession doesn't have. They, they want to drug away whatever you're going through instead of taking a look at it, see what's the purpose of this? Where does it come from? Tell me you about know. that. What, what, what's your journey around acceptance and purpose in, in your own mental health story? Well, the, hearing voices, I, after, you know, after eight years in and out of hospitals, I finally made a definite decision. This is not working. You know, I'm there because people are making money and they're going to keep me coming back so they can have their salaries in their profession. It's so not I made a, no, I made a decision. I'm going to do whatever it takes to never return. And one of the things besides noncompliance was that I got a really good therapist, private, not a state funded one, but private therapist, highly recommended. She was dynamite. She told me among other things that those voices are about messages from your subconscious trying to make you feel important in the face of rejections. Wow. Mm -hmm. So let's look at the rejections whenever you hear voices instead of getting involved in them. And that helped me tremendously. Now other people, you know, only in the past four or five years have I become aware of the peer support movement. And so I've attended hearing voices groups and gone to a couple of international conferences of people who hear voices. Some people cope with them or even use them productively, while there's other people that go nuts. What's the difference? Also, the idea that these voices are there for some reason, you know, going back to you, like my family mm -hmm. made me feel kind of worthless and rejected. So it's, it's a whole buildup of stuff the whole lifetime coming into the psychedelics, which up to all this too rapidly for me to understand.
do you so would you say that you think the psychedelics maybe triggered some of the paranoid schizophrenia um, oh yeah i'm pretty yeah. sure of that yeah okay so you that was a, a drug-induced psycho psychosis drug i mean i don't know technically i'll give you the technical bullshit i don't believe in this but i'll give you some people have said that you're still in remission this is 40 some years later because schizoph paranoid schizophrenia is not supposed to be healable according to a lot of psychiatrists oh. so, so i'm still in remission and other people said you were misdiagnosed so i mean i don't really care one way or the other and i think the whole thing is baloney those all of these categories have no uh, science base they're all subjective so in other words you go to one psychiatrist i mean if i saw enough psychiatrists one of them actually gave me another label oh. i was so afraid to talk because i knew he would give me drugs or do something terrible if i said so i didn't say anything he would ask me questions and i just sit there so i got a new label catatonic yeah that's and, you know, funny yeah i could you know i could have seen other ones who give me bipolar i mean it didn't you know it's just no there's no nothing behind this yeah and there's so many crossover symptoms aren't there so people can it is a little bit subjective um and that idea that it's not curable or that you must manage it now for the rest of your life can feel pretty devastating for like yeah. the amount of people that i know that have attempted to, to take their life or have gone to that extreme once they had the diagnosis because they just felt like it was a death sentence anyway you know um, and you'd, you'd be surprised at the number of people that are begging for diagnosis. Yes. They want to name the thing. It's going to somehow be a lot better with a name. Well, and I have seen that some people do benefit from that in a way. Like they think, oh, if I've got borderline personality disorder, at least I know what I'm working with. I can read up on that. Maybe I can get a therapist who specializes in that, right? What people yeah. don't know is that it's often not an exact science and there's so many variables because the human condition is complex, right? And has to do with right. our attachment, our love, our care. What are the internal voices that we all integrate into our psyche, right? About our, our self-worth and um, for, for, for you, it, it's just the volume's a little bit turned up, right? For us, we just think it's our own inner self, you know, our critic, you know, our own voices of something we need to believe. So there's, there's a different um, volume to it. Now you said, acceptance and purpose i'm curious if you what you feel the purpose has been of you getting this diagnosis and and um, having this whole journey around your mental health issues well i like to feel that the purpose has to do with me then being able to help others and guide them through this kind of stuff that's one thing i, I think about in uh, you know one, one thing my coach I, earlier i told you about a coach that mm -hmm. Help me make this decision not to do coaching. She said, your life is what is the thing that, that is going to help people. Your story. So there's a lot of ways to pursue helping people. It doesn't have to be coaching. It could be writing. I have a memoir that I self-published and doing a, a rewrite. In, uh, there's, there's other ways. I work in Quora. It's a forum. And I'm, uh, I answer questions on psychosis in other mental health areas. So purpose, yeah. Part of the purpose, I guess, was to, uh, well, I feel like, I, you know, I, I call this the bumpy road, my memoir. Like we're talking about these decisive life moments. Mm -hmm. 
somehow I was going down the wrong path, decidedly wrong. I had a, I thought you, you know, you get a wife, you have a family, a car, get a house, you have a nice career and that's what life is. Yeah. So all these things kind of didn't work. Mm -hmm. And I got to a certain point where bam, I needed eight years in and out of hospitals to really wipe out all of this, clean the slate entirely, start something new. In fact, I started a new career during that time when I decided I wasn't going back to hospitals. This was also immensely helpful. I uh, started, uh, I had apprenticed to a weaver, a fiber artist at the university, because that's what I wanted to learn. And this was very different than being a scientist. I'd work for him eight hours a day and then go home and work on my own projects. So I stayed out of the milieu. I stayed out of the clubs and the streets and focused Mm -hmm. on myself and this kind of meditative weaving is a very meditative experience and it's uh, you come up with a artistic expression. And I love, I love what you say about purpose because for, for many of probably a theme with many of our stories on the podcast is that they're, they're doing the sleepwalking through life, right? Like if I just get the wife and the this and the that and whatever, then I tick the boxes and that's, I'll be happy and that's what life will be. Right. And then something happens. I spoke yesterday to a guy who um, went to prison and he, he had a good life. He had good parents, but he was just, you know, and that just disrupted his, his view of the world, his perspective. And of course, countless other people, they've lost somebody close to them. They have their own personal struggle, whatever it might be. And there's something in that moment that they can either choose to go down a cycle of of addiction, abuse, you know, whatever themselves, because it becomes too much to grow from it, right? Or uh, like yourself and like myself, uh, we we can end up eventually looking, being truly woken up by that experience and, and leading a different life with the purpose eventually of supporting others to also wake up and live their best version of themselves. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Um, so you talked about a few kind of practices that you do. I, I love some of those meditation, journaling. Um, what do you do at the moment? Cause I know that we can sometimes evolve, right? So like we can have phases where we do different things that help our mental health. Um, what kind of stuff do you do at the moment to look after your own mental health? Well, one thing that's kind of fun is I probably heard of Julia Cameron, who wrote a book called The Artist's Way, very popular. Yeah, very popular. I I looked at it and I didn't like the book that much, but I took up the writing in the morning. Every morning I spend about 20 minutes of writing a few pages very quickly. No grammar. No, you know, no. Don't overthink it. Yeah. And you never, you never reread it. It's all about pulling things out of the subconscious because of the way the pen and the ink goes onto the paper somehow stimulates things. So that that's one one little thing that I do. I do a lot of little things, and I'm realizing that I really love nature, but the computer has a hold on me, and I have to work on that. I I just uh, I'm addicted to looking at the email, looking at the social networks, and yeah, and, I think and, we all have that problem. And yeah. then you start you start feeling it in some way, and then go, all oh, right, trees, nature, we've got to balance it out. A lot, of, a lot of friends convince me that I need to have a smartphone. I have one of these ancient kind of things, a Nokia. Oh That's my, my cell phone. Yeah. <laughs> it, I don't access the internet on this thing. And uh, I keep thinking, well, I need Uber, so I better get one of these, or I need this or that app. Yeah. So far, I've resisted. And uh, I'm, gl- I'm glad I have. But it gets close sometimes, because like Google Maps, there's a lot of 
things that would be nice to carry around when I'm hiking and you know, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, but uh, that's, I mean, it's a good point that so many of us, we talked about connection and community. So many of us are like that on our devices, right? Uh, oh, just terrible. Yeah. Right. And not doing kind of checking in and seeing people. There's another aspect I could mention about that. And that's, uh, has to do with uh, reading books. Mm -hmm. So many people, especially children, it's disastrous. They don't know how to read. And what does reading do? Reading is, is not like speaking. Speaking is kind of genetic, but reading is a learning process. So when you're a really a good reader, the reading creates critical thinking. It creates empathy because things are really slowed down. And there's a third thing I can't think of, but uh, so we're losing all that stuff by going digital and yeah. not reading books. And Even though really it is the information age, so so the podcasting, the the YouTube, you know, um, it, but it depends who you choose to listen into. But I get what you mean. We're we're losing that cognitive ability to just read and absorb and slow things down. Whereas there's you know on audiobooks you can literally speed up the language. So it can be like four times, five times, six times as fast as they would have normally read in the, in the hope of just like getting the whole book into you in a shorter amount of time, which in a way is tragic, you know? I get it. I'm all for efficiency. I run my own business. So I'm like, how do we hack time and create efficient stuff, right? Um, but, but then there's all these little bits that when you do slow down, you end up um, noticing, you end up realizing what we're losing, you know, in this fast-paced way of living. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I have an answer for that because I never really, I mean, in 2003 is when I retired. And I would say, I don't know anybody that has as low a stress life as I have. The biggest stress for me is running to catch the bus. There's a bus that goes outside my door into the center of town. And sometimes I have to meet somebody in the rush. Oh, the bus. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The big um, Once in a while, you know, once in a while, personal things happen. Maybe I should bring this up. It'd be good to hear. Uh, Personal stuff happens every few months somehow. Something I get into, you know, really angry or really scared or something like this happens, right? It's just mm -hmm. part of my life. I don't try and have that happen, but it shit happens. Mm -hmm. So when it does, my main goal now is to, as quickly as possible, become aware of it so I can work on it. Because my ego loves these kind of moments. It just really it juices the ego to feel angry. Yeah. feel scared you know people actually go to uh these horror movies so they can get scared on purpose yes. yeah yeah anyway so how to manage this is to, as quickly as possible becoming aware then when i'm aware i can take the feeling inside into my body and see what it looks like what color it is where is it in my body get to know this feeling and from a more quiet and compassionate perspective and say where does this emotion you know why, why am i feeling this what's going on here is this a, about survival and uh, maybe i don't need to have this anymore because i'm surviving okay so i can thank this emotion for having been with me in all these years and helped me survive and i can say thank you very much but please leave and don't come back again i don't need you anymore so this whole process is valuable, but it all starts with awareness, which is so tricky for me to quickly get a handle on these things. And it takes practice, and it sounds like any kind of meditation practice can just help us 
or types of therapy, somatic experiencing type therapy to help us connect into the body and what's happening. Even journaling. Mm. Journaling is a way to learn. Uh, and there's so many things. I mean, I, I just, I'm about to publish a book on six tools for self-empowerment. Cool. And they're, they're all the, the basic way of forming goals and tracking is with journaling. So with any of these techniques, journaling is the core for me, for, you know, so I'd say that's a number one tool that I use. And I've done this, you know, that's how come I was able to write a memoir because I have all these experiences recorded going way back and indexed. Amazing. So, so tell us about that. Tell us where people can find your book or if they want to connect with you for any reason and your story, how can they find you? Well, my website, which is not a great website and also I'm going through so many changes, has a lot of information. Don, Don at DonCarp.com, K-A-R-P, Don at DonCarp.com. So that has my social media. It has a contact box and uh, shows, tells about workshops, speaking engagements, things like perfect, that, and, perfect, and the perfect. memoir. We'll and add I, that to the show notes. Yeah, and when I do publish a book, some ebooks are going to be coming up soon. I have maybe I'm juggling five or six different things and uh, not moving ahead very quickly on them, but they're there. Have to right? That's the beauty. That's the beauty <laughs> of retirement. Yeah. Um, so finally, thank you for, for telling us about your website. We'll add that into the show notes. But if there was one piece of advice just to end the podcast on, if there was one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self, to the kid who is um, starting to hear voices perhaps, is getting a little bit nervous and scared and is, has been holding on to things for his whole life, right? What advice would you give him? Uh, With all your knowledge and wisdom. Yes. <laughs> Okay, here, I'd say uh, write down all the things that make you happy, activities that you can do on your own that make you happy. And make sure you do one, at least one every day. Keep track of that. I love that so follow much. Follow your bliss. That's, that's also a career or follow how to, how to create a goal. Yeah. What makes you happy, you know, your career. Does it make you happy? If not, find out what does make you happy and do that. Change it, experiment, change yeah. it. Uh, Don, thank you so much for your, your time and your wisdom all the way from Mexico. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, London. Thank you, Petra. <laughs>Thanks for listening to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Please do subscribe and review on iTunes. Every comment makes a difference. We really appreciate hearing from you. And please do get in touch through PetraBelzebor.com if you're interested in any training, coaching, therapy, or just to join the community and get more information on ways that you can build your own resilience. Until next time.